Will you pray with me in the words of the psalm? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O God, my rock and my redeemer. During this series in Lent, we've been talking about storytelling and how it shapes and forms us. More specifically, when we engage with the stories of the Bible, we are drawn into the larger narrative and the community of God. The ways that we tell stories and find meaning in stories create a path for us, lead us towards something, and stories are all around us. A recent storyline that I found fascinating was in the movie Everything Everywhere All at Once, the movie that stormed the Oscars last weekend. I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend the movie for everyone, because I don't think it's for everyone, and it has some very adult content. But this was a story that stayed with me and made me think and feel and ask questions. The story is very fast-paced, so I didn't follow everything, but even so, something about the way it created a story world and artistically conveyed meaning brought me to tears in some scenes. And I was left with many questions. Because this is a story that has so many layers. It's an absurdist sci-fi drama about the multiverse. It's about immigrant families and mother-daughter relationships and generational divides. It's about our hyper-technological and hyper-connected yet ungrounded world today. I could probably watch this movie three more times and leave with different questions. Stories are multifaceted and hold lots of layers of meaning. The stories in the Bible also have layers of meaning, many, many windows to God, into God's story. On the one hand, this makes these stories a treasure trove where we might find something new each time we read the story. On the other hand, it makes interpretation tricky. For some Christians, over time, the many meanings and questions surrounding Bible stories has caused some fear and a desire to limit interpreting roles to only the highest ranking, most educated, and conventional interpreters. But Anabaptists, since the early 1500s, have held the ideal that anyone, everyone can read and interpret and find meaning in the stories of the Bible. And that through communal discussion and listening to the Holy Spirit, we can find shared meaning together. This is one reason that I'm excited about uh, projects like the Anabaptist Community Bible that we're going to participate in. Small groups of regular, everyday Anabaptists will read and discuss Bible passages together, and our notes will be included, written in the margins of this Anabaptist Bible that will bring together collective experiences and the interpretations of normal people. More on this later. For me personally, my desire to engage Bible stories has changed over time. For a chunk of my adult life, I thought that perhaps these stories might be best left in the past. They didn't seem to hold any meaning that could possibly be relevant to my life. 
At best, they seemed meaningless, and at worst, downright harmful to some people that I care about. How could this book that is full of patriarchy and violence mean anything today? The ways that I heard these stories as a child and the ways that my cultural context had caused me to interpret them no longer worked. So it was only leading up to, and in my seminary years, that these stories began to come alive for me again because I found ways to climb around what had become stale for me and see new sights. One of these ways of seeing new things in a story was to consider the specific perspectives of characters from the story that I had never fully explored before. So I wonder what, what perspectives in this story from John 9 could help us see something new here. Like the movie I just mentioned, this story is packed full of possible layers to explore. If you've been in church for even a couple years, you've probably heard some sermon or teaching on this passage, um, one or more ways to think about the story. It is long and deep, so let's recall the outlines and the highlights of the story. We open with Jesus seeing a man born blind from birth. Seeing or not seeing is a big deal through this whole passage. The disciples wonder, who sinned? And throughout the passage, people assume that the man's blindness must be a consequence of sin. These kinds of assumptions and questions are present throughout the Bible. Is suffering the result or consequence of sin? The Old Testament stories give us a wide range of answers to these questions. But Jesus is quick to untangle this connection between sin and suffering, but says this part of God's revelation. We might wonder if God, he is saying that God causes suffering but then Jesus goes off on a tangent about his work and the coming night and himself as the light of the world. He goes on to heal the man, putting mud and saliva on his eyes and sending him to wash in a pool. Apparently, this happened on the Sabbath. The man comes back healed, but no one can recognize him. Some have said that this story could be best understood as a great drama with various scenes a drama that uses irony to flip the script and cause us to rethink our assumptions. What follows is a number of questioning scenes. The neighbors question the man. The Pharisees question the man. The Pharisees were religious leaders that were working to keep the Jewish faith tradition, tradition sacred, holy, and pure. Then the Jews question the man's parents. This probably refers to other Jewish religious authorities. And then these re religious authorities question the man and drive him away. Finally, Jesus interacts with the man who receives sight in the Pharisees. The text uses irony to flip the script, causing us to understand, while this man has now known Jesus, it is the Pharisees who cannot understand Jesus as the way to God. As you see, there are so many layers we could unpack. What does it mean to be excluded from society? And does God cause suffering? What is the point of Sabbath? And does Jesus take us to, call us to take it seriously or not? Who are these Pharisees and religious leaders? 
When and how can we expect God to heal us? Whew, that's a lot. Like the movie I mentioned, we've been given a fast-paced drama through a whole bunch of existential questions, a multiverse of meanings. So let's choose one layer of this to dig into today. For me, an important and newer layer to listen for is shaped by disability studies. How might this man born blind have experienced this event? And how do those experiencing blindness today hear this story? We learn from the text that this man was a beggar, that he was excluded from the regular community and economy so much that he had to beg for a living. We don't hear anything about him until after he is healed, perhaps to illustrate the fact that others cannot seem to notice him. In fact, it seems like his neighbors never even looked at him or spent time with him because they cannot recognize him after he was healed. When he begins to speak for himself, those around him have trouble believing him. Can you imagine being in this man's shoes, coming back healed to realize that no one can even tell it's you? So much so that they don't even believe you when you tell them it's you. You might realize at that moment that they have never really paid attention to you as a real person. The realities of social marginalization are strong. In all of these questioning scenes, we see the resilience and the courage of this man. Perhaps his whole life of marginalization, all the work he has done to survive, has given him the strength to be truthful to his own experience in the face of these harsh questioners. Despite the pressures to denounce Jesus as a sinner, he continues to be true to his own experience of Jesus. Even his parents cannot stand up to the crowd. And we hear this man's voice over and over again, speaking for himself, representing his experiences in truthful ways and not throwing Jesus under the bus. Somehow, this is too much for his interlocutors, and the religious authorities decide to throw him out again, excluded again. Jesus is the only one here who seems to see this man for who he is and takes his words seriously. Jesus points out that it is the extreme judgment of society that amounts to sin, not the blindness of this man. I like how the message version that Stephen read today says the last lines of the story. Jesus, Jesus says to the Pharisees, if you were really blind, you would be blameless. But since you claim to see everything so well, you're accountable for every fault and failure. For me, using a disability perspective or lens for this story is a newer layer for me to explore. I even remember the moment that this, this layer, this part of the story came to my mind, was brought to my mind. I was in a conversation with a more experienced pastor, and she talked about preparing a passage on a sermon like this. She said something like, well, first you gotta be careful about these healing stories and keep disability perspectives in mind. At the time, this really blew my mind and definitely gave me a fear of all the aspects of a sermon message one must consider when getting ready to preach. Yikes, although I'm sure I will step in many holes along the way. 
But this comment, <laughs> this comment also brought to my attention the fact that perspective matters. The layer of the story that we choose and the perspectives that we consult make a huge difference in the stories that we can tell. The context and the social situation of the sources I read will change the layer of the story that I will see. Who people are, where they come from, and the types of marginalization they have faced matters in the stories and truths they can reveal to us. You can check out the bulletin insert today for more reflection from David Holcomb on perspectives. It also matters how willing we are to take seriously the perspectives that are different from our own. This week, I read the words of Katherine Schneider, who is a psychologist at the University of Wisconsin. She writes this, it happened one too many times my seeing eye dog and I went to church and heard another totally uninspiring homily about John 9, the story of the man born blind. It contained the usual elements. I knew a blind person who was amazing, climbed Mount Everest, was cheerful all the time. Wouldn't it be awful to be blind? Jesus' healing of the blind man was miraculous. The Pharisees were blind not to recognize Jesus for who he was and pray that you never act blind, meaning insensitive to the world around you. She says, in my younger days, I might have picketed, but being over 50, I decided instead to propose some better ideas for preaching about this miracle story so it could inspire both the blind and the sighted in the congregation. Schneider goes on to outline some of the ways that we see blindness in the Bible and the various stereotypes that we often hold. It's important to think about metaphor as we, the metaphors we use around disability. Using blindness as a metaphor for ignorance or lack of faith could send the wrong message to people we care about. In fact, one clergywoman who is blind reported that when singing Amazing Grace, she stands up in front and loudly sings, was blind and still can't see. <laughs> if we always correlate blindness with ignorance and physical cures with faith, this symbolism impacts our perceptions of those who live with blindness. Taking care with our theologies around suffering is also important. In, it is part of our human nature to want to explain suffering and the limitations that some may face. But this drama in John 9 shows us something complex about the world, that we are all differently abled, limited in many ways. Yet in our world, some are socially ostracized, excluded for the ways that they don't fit in. And so we create narratives that explain why someone is the way they are, cast blame. In doing so, we try to claim control of the chaos we all face in the world and name the problem so we might try to avoid it ourselves. But Jesus shows us that we cannot find true wholeness in making these judgments and exclusions. Our security lies in naming Jesus, in the power of a God that walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death. As in Psalm 23, God is with us when things are hard and leads us to greener pastures. God will restore us to full community so that we might invite others in. 
Schneider also says that God empowers people with disabilities to struggle daily, both with the concrete limitations that are part of their disabilities and with the societal attitudes that limit their participation in the world. But people with disabilities are not only suffering servants, they are also leaders that we can follow. Temporarily, able-bodied people should be struggling beside people with disabilities, not pitying or stereotyping them. People without disabilities should also be seeking healing from their ableism. Encountering this layer of the story has opened my heart to new things. When we listen to and include many perspectives, our stories will come alive in new ways. While many of us do not struggle with permanent disability, there are ways that we all will experience it in the people we love and care for, in medical challenges that render us temporarily disabled, in experiences of mental illness that may be less visible but still hold us hostage. And we can also observe and learn from the strength of those who show us resilience from within situations of disability. We can work in solidarity with those who are differently abled against social norms of exclusion. When we work together to cross the boundaries of marginalization, to include those who might be excluded, we are being liberated and healed by the God who leads us all to goodness, mercy, and green pastures that restore our souls. And our stories with new layers become richer for all this. <laughs>